Thanks for listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. Our goal each week is to bring you amazing content and guests. Support our podcast by visiting our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, to pick a tier that is right for you. Or donate any amount you like. It's that easy. You may even pick up some cool swag or have an opportunity to help us co-host an episode. Help us bring you an awesome episode each week by visiting patreon.com forward slash mentors for mil today. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. going good man how you doing yeah great yeah it's great to uh to be on the show here today yeah man so uh, you know got some different folks here i want to introduce of course you know eric already and i'm robert and then that's brother that's paul sitting over there on the other side there so paul uh martinez it is yep the one and only great I feel like I know you guys so much because I listen to your podcast all the time. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like assuming awesome. you guys know about me and everything. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yep, yep. I appreciate Definitely, that. It's, it's always good to hear that kind of stuff, honestly. You know, I mean, um, people, we get little bits of, you know, direct messages and stuff like that via our social media accounts. And occasionally I'll get an email. And I tell you, you guys just don't know how much that makes us feel good when we get that little note that, you know, we might be having a bad day or wondering, hell, is there anybody out there even listening to us? And then next thing you know, here comes this little note that says, hey, you know, I appreciate everything you guys are doing. It just makes our day. I usually end up sending those things out to all the, the cadre of hosts and letting them know, you know, just what an yeah. impact we're making out there. So appreciate you listening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no problem. It's the same thing happens to me. Like, um, yeah, I work full time. I got a wife and two kids and, you know you pretty much use any free time that I have to like speak and write and do stuff for the green Beret foundation. And like, sometimes I'm like, man, I'm like, just like this is so much I'm exhausted. And then you get that note from somebody and you're like, all right, that's why we do it. You know? Yeah, no doubt about it. And, uh, so I want to dive into your career because of course, um, you know, Eric told us a little bit about your background. I think it'll be really cool to get into the, the depth of that and your experience and everything and how you came away from that and, and are today and, and leading from the front still. Uh, but you, you came in the army and enlisted right after college graduations. And after two years of, you know, uh, or actually you went to LaSalle Institute and then, which was a uh, boys Catholic military high school in Troy, New York, I guess. And then upon graduation, you attended Union College. Was that the where you received your political science degree and in, in those? Okay. Correct. Yep. So after that, then you decided to go into the Army then. Now, did you go Correct. straight into the 18 program as an officer or did, did you go the enlisted route, 18 x-ray? I, I went the enlisted route. I did the 18 x-ray program. Okay. Um, pretty much like after surveying all the options that I had. Um, you know, it all started back when I was 14 years old at the all boys Catholic military school. Uh, I say a little bit different high school experience than most people probably have. Uh, but you know, this is kind of the, the only time you'll, you'll hear me admit this about the Navy SEALs, but, uh, we got to watch a Navy SEAL hell week video when I was 14 there, yeah. uh, in our freshman year in our political science class. And like half the class is staring out the window and the other half is like, why would anybody want to do that? And I'm like, 
that's exactly what I want to do in my life. Yeah, yeah. And so I started this infatuation <laughs> with the military and like special operations. And when I went to college, I was there from '02 to '06, right? And the wars were really starting to pick up. I was a poli sci major. You know, I'm at a Northeastern liberal arts school, so I'm typically the person defending everything, and I'm in the minority. Um, and so it, it was like this fascination that I had throughout high school. 9-11 happens in my senior year, turns into more duty. And then I'm in school, you know, I'm like verbally backing up these wars. And I'm like, you know, you physically need to get out there and support it too. So, I mean, it was really unpopular, right? I graduated with 508 people before doing the military. I was the only person to enlist. Uh, I could have walked into a family business that was doing about 30 million in revenue a year. Uh, but decided enlisting in the army was the best thing for me to be a green beret. Um, so when I, I, it came time really to get down to it and say, uh, all right, what am I going to do in the military? Surveyed all the special operations units out there. And to me, the green berets, the mission, the De Oppresso Liber, to free the oppressed, I mean, it just spoke to me. Uh, so for me, like at 22, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. I don't want to go to ODCS. I don't want to roll the dice. I want a guaranteed chance to be a Green Beret, and it's going to be on me to make sure that happens. Yeah, and so I mean, you Smart already, move. yeah, and you already had um, minored in Mandarin Chinese and East Asian studies. So why why did you pick that specific area of the world there, and and uh, how was that beneficial to you then going through the Q and language and stuff? Yeah, so I I mean I knew right that when I went to college and I was eighteen on day one, like there was never a thought in my mind that I wasn't going to join the military. So really tried to tailor all the studies towards it. Like, so the poli sci and studying global politics events. Nice. And then, you know, the, the, the concept of, you know, being a green beret, right? Like having to learn a language. And so it came down to uh, Mandarin or Spanish. And I was talking to my father about it. And I was like, I, you know, I really want to learn a language. I think it'd be really helpful for special operations. I'm thinking about learning Mandarin or Spanish. What do you think? And so our family business at the time was dollar stores. Uh, my father, you know, owned and built up about 30 stores and he did a lot of work with Chinese businessmen. He's like, you should definitely learn Chinese. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, dad, well, that sounds good. Like you've never led me astray. And I'm like sitting through my like first week of class. I'm like, well, why didn't I do Spanish? <laughs> uh, so he was looking for you to come back and take charge of the family business. It sound like, right? Yeah, I think that and just like thinking forward in terms of, you know, uh, where business is going, you know, oh, yeah. global uh, global business. So um, it was, yeah, it was a really great experience. I actually went to China when I was in college and just became fascinated with East Asian studies and actually like really dived a lot deeper into like the Green Berets when you're thinking about like counterinsurgency in Southeast Asia, like Vietnam. Um, and so just kind of developed this even more of a like romantic relationship with the, uh, the special forces. So what language was it that you ended up receiving there in the military once you went into special forces? I mean, was it still your Mandarin or was that helpful or was it something else? Yeah, it was Mandarin. And okay. so it was very, very helpful that, um, you know, the first day of class wasn't the first time I was hearing a lot of the, the stuff that we were going through and made it a little bit easier for me uh, going through the six month of language training and, you know, Eric can probably attest to, right? You get done with language training, like you're awesome, you're spitting it, it's great. And then 
I never used my Mandarin ever again. <laughs> See, I, I got lucky because uh, I was on a base in uh, Camp Delta down there in Al-Qut, and I was working with the Kazakhs, and then the Ukrainians uh, were also on our base. But uh, the funny thing for me was I used to have to brief uh, their general in um, diversion or whatever, in subversion, uh, because he they were basically selling uh, our – where we were headed uh, downtown to uh, some back then it was uh, Mahdi Militia for some booze. Nice. Yeah. Like my so, language training is finally I, paying off. I, I'd get, I'd get, yeah, I, I'd get back from uh, a mission or whatever, and it'd be like, "Where, where have you been? Uh, you did not go where you said." And you know, all, the, all of this would be in Russian uh, with him, and I'd be like, oh, "You can talk to my Bokovnik, which is my colonel," <laughs> and he's yeah. like, "No, no, no, I'm good." <laughs> So you end up getting assigned then to the first special forces group out of Fort Lewis. Tell Correct. us, yeah, tell us a little bit about that and the time that you uh, were with them. Yeah, so I got out there in the spring of 2009. Uh, I was pretty fortunate to uh, go through the Q course. I finished it in two. It was two days under being in the army, two years, <clears throat> like including basic training, airborne school. And, you know, I say it doesn't mean that I was that good. It just means that nobody caught me doing anything stupid. So got really lucky on that front there. No recycles uh, and no no issues, huh? No. I mean, I was lucky. I mean, I look back at it. There's a lot of things I probably should have or could have been recycled for. But, you know, luckily, yeah. uh, an instructor <laughs> didn't see me making that mistake. So it was pretty much like finish a school on a Friday and start a new one on a Monday, which at the time, I mean, was exactly what I wanted to be doing. Um, and I think you kind of worry about the wrong things in life because back in 2007, 8, and 9, when I was going through the Q course, I was like, oh, my God the wars are going to pass me by. I'm never going to get my chance. (laughs) That was not happening. Yeah. You know, 2019 here. But, uh, so I I finished in, um, my wife and I moved out. My wife and I have been together actually since we were 18, uh, first couple weeks of our freshman year in college, got married when we were 23 at the uh, Fayetteville County courthouse, which I'm sure a lot of listeners. Oh yes. (laughs) We went to Texas Roadhouse afterwards to celebrate. It was great. Oh, nice. Ooh, we got the cinnamon yeah. butter. <laughs> 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 Baby, you can get the cowboy cut. <laughs> yeah, I was like, whatever you want tonight, it's on me. I'm a big E4 here. <laughs> I just got promoted to specialist in the queue. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was funny. Like, we went uh, around the barracks before we went to go to do the wedding. We were like, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get married and any y'all want to come like, you know, be our witnesses. The guys are like, yeah, sure, man. I got nothing going on. <laughs> Did you give them the free meal for it? Yeah. I paid for their meal. Oh, Let me nice. check my watch. Okay. Rolf Jensen's not around. <laughs> yeah. uh, a, year, a year later we did, we did the church wedding, but uh, you know, that was a very, I think military story there. And uh, yeah, so, so we were married the whole time. And uh, she's, she's been with me ever since, and we'll get into it later about just how amazing she is as a woman, person, my motivator, everything to me. Uh, but yeah, we moved out to Fort Lewis in the spring of 2009. I signed, you know, signed into group pretty much as soon as I got out there, just real eager. I mean, this is my life goal to be a Green Beret. And it's like, I trained the whole time and now you're going to the Super Bowl type of thing. And but pretty much as soon as I got out there, uh, we de- I deployed pretty quick about I think two months into it uh, to the Philippines, so that was kind of my first taste into SF life. Was there for a month and a half, um, just incredible education of working with 
like the local government working with the foreign um, the foreign military and it's just like screwed everything up all the time. Did, uh, did you get to hang out with Manny Pacquiao? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, he like runs their government. I thought <laughs> it's funny. Like, you know, we were in Mindanao uh, for this and I talked to people from the Philippines and I'm like, like yeah, it's been a lot of time in Mindanao. And like, they're like why would you ever go down there? <laughs> like, well, I wasn't getting extended on vacation. So, uh, but just like an incredible, incredible opportunity to really kind of like learn the ropes, learn what it was like to work with uh, some foreign nationals, understand a little bit more of the process. And before I really got thrown into the fray, because on that deployment, we got our deployment order or while we were in the Philippines, we got our deployment orders to go to Afghanistan, basically four months after uh, we got back from the Philippines. Wow. Okay. So that was your first then deployment. And, and I, uh, you didn't mention about Thailand. So did you get a chance to go to Thailand right after the Philippines or? Yeah, we did. Um, I did the Philippines, Afghanistan. Um, we went to Afghanistan for seven months. Uh, and then we came home on a Friday. We got went to work on a Monday. Said, great job, boys. You're going back to Afghanistan in seven months. By the way, you're going to go for an 11-month deployment. It's going to be the longest special operations deployment of the global war on terror. Um, so I'm like, wow, that's 18 out of 24 months doing like moving to contacts with the Afghan commandos. So I feel like the odds are really on my side. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I know those feels. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, you're like, you find out like, hey, look, we need you guys to go to Thailand for about five weeks. And by the way, you're going to do the two separate training iterations. So when you look at a calendar, right, our team would have been home for maybe like three and a half months in two years. And you're newlywed. Yep. Newly married. Um, you know, just dragging my wife across the country for me to basically go on all the time. How did she uh, feel about some of this? I mean, she's did she know much about the military prior to this? As Was, you know, her family engaged in any of that? Or was this like a new experience for her with the military? And then, of course, special operations on top of that. Completely new experience for her. Yeah, um, tough. She grew up in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Mm, drug her to the West Coast, and then you leave her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, We're really pouring this on. Keep in mind, <laughs> Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I say now I'm really just trying to give my wife everything in life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no doubt about it. But yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was it was pretty tough for her. It was really tough on me. Um, you know, before that first deployment, I'd wake up at night. And she wouldn't be in bed. And then I'd hear her like crying. Like I found out she was like going to the closet to cry at night um, because she was just so worried about everything. And uh, I mean, it was, it was really hard for me to have to deal with that. Like knowing that the decisions I was making, what I was doing in my life and my career were having such an impact on her. You know, and then we went on that deployment um, and we were up in Kunduz uh, for both of the deployments uh, up near pretty much near the Tajikistan border. You know, back in 2010, um, it, the focus really was it was all down south. Like mm -hmm. you think of Marja yeah, happened in yeah, Helmand, Kandahar. You know, everybody. I remember when we got our deployment orders and like you got you're going up to up north, man. Well, that's good. It's just safe up there. It's, you know, you're you're gonna come back home in one piece. And I mean, pretty quickly we we're like, holy shit, this place is not safe. Just because you keep saying something safe doesn't mean anything. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I spent some Absolutely. time in that area in, in 2010, 2011, and I'll attest to that. That was Heated. Very yeah. Heated. It is not, I was not expecting that. No, I, I think it, it took a lot of people by surprise. And like, 
the, the crazy part about that first deployment for me was that like I joined my team pretty much like I got to my team. We palletized our gear. Uh, we went on block leave. We went to Afghanistan. I opened up my gun box that for the first time in Afghanistan and zeroed my rifle like the day we got there. Oh, wow. And I had no time to train with my team before the deployment. Um, I was on the, like the, what we call the B team as soon as I got to, to the company for a little while. And so I had no time to train with the team. Like the first live fire exercise I do with them is a five hour firefight. Um, no clue how these guys like communicate on the radio with one another. Um, I, I remember I go, Kevin, you're going to be on the 50 cal tomorrow. And I'm just like this new cherry 18 x-ray, like meekly raising my hand in the background. Like, uh, Hey guys, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't even know how to load a 50 cal. And they're like, you know, everybody loses their mind on me. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> just what we want a newbie yeah, that doesn't know how to. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a good time to be a new guy during that time period because a lot of us that had already been on several deployments, especially in combat deployments, um, on the ODAs or I mean across soft probably in general, we were ruthless. Cause I remember I was a young and very, very cocky alpha, uh, male <laughs> when new guys came. Yeah. And, and guys definitely were. And, uh, you know, they like, like flipped out, like, what the fuck? I can't believe you don't know how to do this. Like, like, I'm like well, they just, I, I haven't done it since basic training. I mean, it was like two and a half years ago. They loaded it for us. What do you want me to do? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, so, I think we meant well, but yes, it, you're right though, man. That, that yeah, <laughs> that's gotta be wild. Yeah. It, it was, was the same yeah. for us. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it was, it was definitely tough in that sense of like, Hey, all right. Like, you know, they'd be like, okay, well, all right, we're going to bring you out to the Wadi tonight and show you how to use that thing. And then you're, you're using it for real, like 24 hours later. Um, but like to the credit of my team, I mean, they're the most amazing men I've ever met in my life. Like, yeah, they were ruthless to me, but it all served a purpose and served a reason. And like, I owe my life to those guys for teaching me the lessons that uh, kept me alive and kept other people alive. But it was, you know, just a baptism by fire in terms of, oh yeah learning the, the team, how the way they operate. And then, you know, being up North there, you know, we really didn't have a whole lot of supplies, the supply line, I say stop before it got to us. And I was a Charlie on the team and we were always undermanned and always understaffed and everybody wants me to be doing everything. And I got like a roll of five fifty cords and, you know, hundred mile an hour. <laughs> tape. I'm trying to build tape. <laughs> I know that pain. Yeah. But, you know, looking back on it, think it's an experience a seven-month period that shaped who i am as a person oh god it had to have been i mean you think about all the stuff that's going on is being thrown at you and uh or thrown at you and everything and i can only imagine you uh with that 50 cow you you must have been practicing all night stripping that thing and doing the head spacing timing and trying to get that thing you know just right and everything and making sure you're comfortable because the last thing you want to do is go out there and fail on the mission yeah. I mean, like the greatest fear I ever had was it wasn't even dying. Like it was like letting the letting team down. down. Yeah. You know, letting, letting. And, and did you finish, did you figure out how to put it on safe? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think that they had some fun with me on that one. Oh, like, I bet. I'm sure. Oh, we did. We always did with any of our new guys. Yeah. That would have been good. Especially the x-rays. So you- would, oh, yeah. Yeah, an X-ray, like a college kid, like you know, came from like a wealthy family. Which, like, I had the odds stacked. I was very happy we got some other new guys on the team. Oh yeah, <laughs> you definitely did. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, the, the while you were deployed there, I would imagine then that they had several rotations in of new guys because you were there for a considerably long time. I mean, that's that's a good long period. I I would imagine. Well, so the the first deployment was seven months, um, which was at the time like a pretty standard SF deployment, right? Okay, for Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, and we came home. You know, they reshuffled a little bit of the teams. Uh, we. We got some new blood on the team, which was uh, which was pretty good. We got a new team sergeant, and like, ironically, like my, that was the guy who put me through small unit tactics. And you know, I think it was a really big lesson to me too, because our, our new team sergeant he put me through SUT, and he put two other guys through our, t- our on our team through SUT. And so, it, it, to me, it was just kind of this like testament of like when you're in a training position, you got to take that incredibly serious, because. You just don't know where those guys are going to end up, right? You don't know where they're going to go. You don't know what they're going to be doing. And, you know, so you, you got to make sure they're ready to go. Uh, but, you know, we had, so we had our new team sergeant, uh, just incredible guy that, you know, I, I look up to him as, as probably one of the best mentors I ever had in the military, just as a individual and a husband and a father. We got some additional assets on the team. And I think at that point, that was a big shift, right? Going from 10 to 11, where people were like, holy shit, there is a war going on in northern Afghanistan and we are going to lose this area here. Uh, so when we went yeah. back for that second deployment, it was night and day. Like I was like, man, this is like what it's like to be an SF guy. Like we had as much aircraft as we wanted. Um, we had a camp mayor to run the base so I could actually get some sleep as the Charlie. Right. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, you know, had like actually like overstaffed on paper on a team. And so it just, made it a significantly more enjoyable experience and like made it feel like we're actually getting out there and like getting the work done because even if you go back to 2010, you know, we have the commandos up there. Um, you know, they're supposed to, you know, they're modeled after Ranger battalion, you know, they're supposed to be able to do ops like that. We didn't have air assets and we had all of Northern Afghanistan. We had 600 miles long. We didn't have air assets. Oh, uh, wow. So yeah, it's Not hard good. to hard to model a unit after Rangers that rely so much on air assets and then expect them yeah. to perform. You know, it's yeah, and it covers such a, a like a broad swath of, of territory. And like the, the crazy thing is, like <clears throat> the second or two weeks before the end of that first deployment, we finally get to do this air assault into like a highly contested Taliban held area. You know, it turns into like a, a ten hour firefight. Temperatures getting up to like one hundred and thirty degrees and um, yeah, you know, like probably more convinced I was going to die that day than any other day of my life. And uh, I'm like, this just seems like it's backwards. But so it, it was nice to be able to go on that second deployment and have just a lot more assets and really be able to focus on the mission. When did you arrive on the second deployment? I was there in March 2011. Okay. So take us on the journey of uh, that second deployment, because this is when things changed definitely for you over the, the cycle of that. Yeah. So the, uh, in the second deployment, we get there, it feels like I've never left. Right. I mean, we were pretty much just there six months prior. Um, I went back, I, you know, went back to my old room. It was just the way I'd left it. Um, and, uh, I had this like weird feeling, uh, when I went on the deployment that something bad was probably going to happen, uh, to me. Uh, one of my best friends, he had gotten hurt really bad. Uh, I remember, you know, I'd go see him in the hospital and, uh, it, like one day in like his drug induced, uh, haze that he's in, in the hospital after getting shot and hit with two grenades, he's like, 
He's like, you're going to get hurt on your next deployment. And then just like passes out. And I was like, Oh boy. Wow. Uh, and then the, uh, the two Charlies that I was replacing, um, both of them got shot about a month before our team ripped in. And so I was like, Oh man, like, you know, the, the, the two Charlies on the team, they got shot. Um, and, and we went on the deployment and you know, we got there, we hit the ground running. Things were, were going really well. I mean, we were doing really good work. I felt great about it. Um, was exhausted, obviously, especially thinking like this is going to be an 11 month deployment. Um, you know, it was, it, the deployment was actually so long. I had like some mid tour leave. And so took my leave, I think in uh, August, um, right before my wife started school back up again. And, um, I just remember going there thinking like on leave, like, like, man, if I can get past the fall, I think I'm going to survive this deployment. Um, but I knew that when we went, when I went back from leave, um, we had this massive campaign planned for like Northwestern Afghanistan. So I was like, man, if I, if I can just get past this campaign, I think I'm going to survive the deployment here. I'm curious to know when you came back and, you know, uh, your wife hadn't seen you in so long. I mean, it's been two years of marriage, a little over or so, and you guys haven't seen each other for so much. Uh, how much were you able to really kind of check out and, and really focus on the here and now? I think I was able to check out for maybe like 36 hours. Yeah. And then you just start thinking to yourself, like, all right, I'm going back in 13 days. I'm right. going back in 12 days. Um, you know, I wonder, uh, is the money situation okay? Like, is the, uh, how, you know, how is, how's it going with the workforce? Is the base keeping up all right? Um, is, you know, what's happening with the team? Am I missing something? And then, you yep. know, thinking about what we had coming up on the docket for what we were going to be doing. And it's funny, like, before I left the deployment, I told everybody, the team sergeant, was, you know, he and I took leave together. So he tells the team, he's like, hey, look, here's my cell phone. You guys need anything. You call me whenever you want. And then after he gets done saying that, I was like, I don't want anybody here to call me while I'm on leave. Nobody better email me. Nobody better Facebook message me. Nobody better do anything. And of course, like, what do your teammates do, right? They, they're good teammates, so they call you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, give, give, give you the lowdown on things. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't even yeah. I think. You know, that's all you can think about. Um, so it, it was really tough for me to do that. And I think it was, it was almost harder on my wife. Cause she would say like, Oh sure. You know, what if, what if this is it? Like, what if this is God's opportunity for us to say goodbye one more or, you know, see each other one more time. Uh, and so, you know, went back to that or after those two weeks were up uh, very, very tough to go back. And it kind of coincidentally at that time too, I was faced with a really difficult decision because uh, technically my contract was going to be up and I really could have just went home or, you know, stayed home at that point in the deployment. Um, cause I could have uh, ETS, but the thought of like leaving the team, right? Like, yeah. Oh, they're in this uh, pretty intense combat situation was something I could never bear. Um, I know my wife begged me obviously to do it. Um, but you know, no good deed goes unpunished. So we went back uh, did a couple of missions and then we we went out to northwestern Afghanistan to do series of series of uh, you know valley clearing operations and we, we cleared out this one village um, three times we went there three times there was a firefight uh, Paul I bet you've probably been there at some point if you were doing work there in 2011 and uh, it's in the northwestern part of the country and we were basically going to uh, like clear it hold it. Um, seals were going to put a VSO site in there 
And so, you know, we get into a small skirmish, we get into a firefight there. Um, you know, nothing too crazy. Three days later, we're going to get picked up and I'm standing on top of uh, the roof of the schoolhouse. And I ask our Intel sergeant, I'm like, well, where, where are we going next? And he just turns around and he points to the valley behind us. And I'm like, well, is it going to be bad? And he's like, oh yeah, it's going to be bad. <laughs> and so, you know, at the time I'm like, oh, all right, that's great. You know, trying to show my false bravado, but in, in the inside, I'm like throwing up, of course. Uh, so you know, we get back from that mission and I, I see the manifest and uh, I went to the team car. I'm like, there's something, something wrong with this manifest here. I'm not on it. And he's like, yeah, man, you got the night off. Like you'll be the QRF commander. Um, typically like we'd rotate guys as the QRF commander just to give them the night off. Like, 99.9% of the time, it's not going to get called. Um, and, you know, so then I was like, in my head, like, something's going to happen here. I got, I got to be on this mission. And so I, I did everything I could to try to convince him that, uh, I was like, man, you're going to need me there. And he was like, all right, if you can find somebody to take your spot, you're good. And so it was easy to, to find somebody to take that uh, QRF spot and, uh, you know, got put on the manifest. And the, uh, you know, we landed and we're, in the northwestern part, uh, you know, in the cut, I'm sorry, in Faria province. And we're doing a, this is just going to be a like, valley clearing. Uh, so this is something we had done quite a bit. You know, basically we'd just get dropped off at one end of a valley. We would clear through to a designated point, get picked up like anywhere between one to three days later, uh, go through the villages there, just take a look, see what was going on, try to collect information. And maybe like one out of five times we'd do this could get into a firefight. And so it was, routine in the sense that we had done this operation quite a bit but then at the end of the day like we knew how how bad this area was and how every time we went out to this area we'd usually get into a firefight and so you know, we landed right before the sun comes up and i just look up and i'm just like oh man fuck this is gonna suck like you see these like large sloping hills like mountains on each side they have these folds in them that are just like perfect for people to hide and fight in at the end of september Valley's pretty lush. It's pretty green. And then, you know, yeah. Sniper alley. Yeah. So like as soon, as soon as, uh, as soon as that realization hit me, you know, we start clearing buildings and, you know, just as the sun comes up over the mountain edge, um, we start to start to take a ton of fire. Like one of our, uh, one of my teammates in his squad pretty much got near ambushed. And so for the next couple of minutes, like the radios are going crazy. Everybody's talking back and forth, trying to figure out what's going on, where the fire is coming from, who needs help, who needs support. Um, and, you know, I, at the time I'm thinking to myself, all right, we got a classic battle drill here. Like I'm going to move up, you know, assault through this thing. Like, you know, visions of like some hand to hand are going through my head. Um, but, you know, of course, everybody else on the team had that same thought, you know, everybody's trained in the battle drills, right? And so I, I, you know, I move up to the front, like there's three other guys there waiting to do that, but ultimately decided to drop on that location. And after the bombs dropped, you know, I thought that was it. It's like we had a little excitement here, just one commando, uh, one commando shot and uh, that'll be it, right? We'll just keep clearing through this thing. We'll get picked up, do this thing in a, a couple of days. But uh, when, the, when the bombs dropped, it really only served to like embolden the enemy. And so you know, for the next 10 hours, just kept going back and forth in this valley. And we had one of our, one of the things that we would do is we would drop off like uh, sniper teams and our mortars on the ridge lines. And so those guys would just be pushing forward for us, spotting um, while we were in the valley, we, you know, they'd give us the go ahead. We'd move forward. 
And, you know, I say 10 hours, right. It's hard to like, people like, you guys are like shooting for 10 hours. And like, no, it was like a, it was like a chess match. <laughs> right. Well, can, can you give some of the listeners at home kind of an idea of how many people you're moving with as far as like organic to you guys vice, you know, what you're facing kind of too. I mean, I think that would help you even paint the picture because it's crazy. And I, and then we know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, and I think that this is kind of like, it's a good point to make here too. Like, um, one of the things I loved about being a green beret, um, one of the more frustrating things though, it's like, you're typically outnumbered like 10 to one, maybe 15 to one usually by your indigenous force. So on this day, there's probably 15 Americans and maybe like hundred, 120 Afghans out there. And, you know, you have a very limited uh, vocabulary of Farsi, which I had a couple interpreters and, you know, you're really just trying to hurt the cats through the valley and, uh, and, and oh, move the situation. And, and so on this day, I mean, we probably were up against like maybe 10 or 15 people, um, which doesn't seem like a lot, but you know, as you guys know, like a, an effective guerrilla force of 10 or 15 people can, <laughs> can cause a lot of damage. And yeah. it's probably important to point out here too, that these people are highly trained. This isn't like down South where I don't think the training is as good, but they're on par with Western military training. I mean, they know battle drills too. That's what I experienced when I was in the area. So these yeah. guys are good. Yeah. These are, aren't just some Taliban hill fighters. They're actually trained. Was like we're trained. People. I was yeah, working with people around this same time with cross border ops as well. So I understand. Yeah. Yeah, up north, I mean, you're dealing with IMU, um, obviously the Taliban, um, you know, the, the Chichen, or the Chichenese, as my... Uh, Chichenese, as my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, and plus, too, like this area, pretty close proximity to Iran, Turkmenistan, um, just so many avenues to, like, sneak into the country from there. Um, and then it's funny you said that, Paul. Uh, one of my teammates, Sergeant First Class Ben Wise, who actually got killed two weeks before the... Uh, the deployment ended. He was, uh, you know, he, he would be one of our guys that always be up with the snipers, like the best shot on the team, you know, a soda guy. And he's like, dude, these guys were trained, man. It's like, it's like they, they knew what we they were doing. Um, you know, so, so we're going back and forth kind of throughout this Valley throughout the entire day. And in the 10th hour of it, I'm on the Western side of the Valley there's a dry riverbed that runs through it that basically kind of is a natural line of demarcation between the west and the east on it. And we're taking a lot of fire from a compound to the north of us. Now, the thing that is separate, like we we're separated, though, um, from this compound by an open field. At the time, we didn't have any air on station, so we couldn't drop on the on compound. So my teammate, uh, and his, he volunteered to basically go across this open field during the firefight to take the compound down. And so, you know, for all the listeners out there, like a firefight is dangerous enough, but to cross an open field is like a practically suicidal mission. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, but I think that stuff like that, like to me, just like speaks to like the love of, of what you have for your teammates. Right. Say when we go out on missions, there's 12 guys on a team. So to me that 11 other guys lives were more important than mine. And I know that every other guy on the team felt the same way. And that's a perfect example. Absolutely. So as soon as they start that movement there, I'm on this rooftop and I'm like, you know, 27 hot shot, you know? Um, so I'm like, well, I'll just, I'll walk around this roof and try to draw fire to myself because I think I have less of a chance of getting shot. And my teammates had the same idea too, like get up, expose themselves at their positions. They're taking their VS 17 panels, 
uh, like a bright colored construction vest, waving them in the air, trying to draw fire to them. It worked, right? Like it worked better, better than we wanted it to. And bullets yeah. ripping, ripping past my head and landing at my feet. My teammate made it to the compound and I'm still like standing around for some reason, walking around like an idiot. And my, my team sergeant gets on the, uh, on the horn. And he's like, Kevin, get the fuck off of that roof. So I was like, yeah, it's probably a good idea. So I, I looked down at the commandos and I'm like, man, if we don't get off this roof, we're going to get shot. It was like the quickest I'd ever seen those guys move because they practically jumped off the roof. And uh, I was the last person off. I went around the corner of the building and I went through the side and I wanted to try to get a vantage point of like how I was going to get my squad together and how we we're going to push forward and assault uh, assault downhill into a dry part of the dry riverbed we're taking fire from. And I stood at the corner of the building for a couple seconds and all of a sudden it just felt like I got hit in the stomach with a sledgehammer. Mm. And, you know, I, I was lifted in the air, you know, as my body slams off the ground, I very much like understand, like you've definitely, you've just been shot. Um, it took every ounce of energy I had just to like gain some composure, calm myself down and then put my, my headphones back on, call my teammates, give them my location, uh, tell them that I'd been shot and then started saying, I, I had this, I'd got shot in the stomach. And so I had this pain that was going through my hip, through my stomach and shot down my leg. I didn't know it at the time, but the bullet hit my femoral nerve. And so it paralyzed my left leg. And that's why I had this pain shooting down my leg. But at the time I thought I'd gotten shot in the leg also. And so I, I just like grabbed my tourniquet and I'm like, all right, dude, you got about two minutes to live here. And started doing the self-assessment. And this was all like a second nature type of thing. And I think that's a testament to it every person who trained me from the first day that I joined the military, um, this, this whole thing like kicked in as like a second nature, um, started doing the self-assessment. I couldn't find any blood on my leg. And then I make my way up to my stomach and just see like a little tiny hole, really nothing I can do. And I'm just laying out in the open there. Uh, after a couple minutes, I call my teammates again to let them know how dire the situation is. You know, they're pinned down by some heavy volumes of fire desperately trying to make them or their way to me. But, um, when I got off of the radio that second time I look up and there was an Afghan soldier that spent almost two years training. Uh, and he, he ran out into the open, grabbed me by my body armor, bullets flying around us, dragged me behind the building, you know, gets me out of the open area there and behind this, some cover. And then that's when my, my teammates started to flood in. Jeez, man. Wow. That's wild, man. And I, I think you kind of bring up something that that whole uh, like we fall to the level of our training to rise above the occasion, uh, essentially here. And I mean, I can like. I think we talked with Tom like a few months back about how everybody's perception changes within a firefight, and I can only imagine the anguish of like. I, and having known what it's like to have somebody that's shot and down uh, to try to get to that area to you know revive and or you know save that person it, it's that's got to suck the your your situation is like you know you don't even know what's going on yeah i mean it was all happening so fast and you know just like fighting to, to stay conscious the whole time and you know as soon as my, my teammates get there they start frantically working on me you know people are coming up to me like telling me that they love me with like tears in their eyes and and people are coming up to our medic and saying, hey, is, is Kevin going to make it or not? And uh, he's like, yeah, I don't know. It looks, looks really bad. And 
Like, little do these guys know I can hear the entire time. Oh, yeah. You guys are really right. helping out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the words of encouragement at this moment? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Especially in like, 2020. We're, we're trained to lean down and say, you're going to be okay, man. You're all right. Yeah, you're going to be okay, man. Buddy, it's not so bad. We just heard. I've you know, known you for three years and you've never complimented me. You're telling me you love me now. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a Remember all those fun, times so. I told you I hate you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they, they stabilized me. Um, and then to get to that HLD, I mean, they were going through open fields, getting shot at, returning fire, carrying me on a stretcher. How far did you have to go? Um, they, it wasn't like so much of a distance. It was just going through the maze of the Afghan village to try to get me to where it was. And then of course, lying to the, to the uh, air crew about how far away the fire was. And, you know, <laughs> oh, and yeah. oh, of course. Cause dust stuff ain't coming for that. If, if, if there's bullets flying, they're like, man, I don't know about that. Thousand kilometers or thousand meters away. Yeah. Uh, and, and let me say, Dustoff does some pretty heroic things. Don't don't get me wrong. I don't want some aviators to get all upset at us. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Yes. Um, but the crazy thing is, we actually have all this on helmet camera. A guy like randomly Ooh. had his helmet camera get running. Out. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, I've watched the footage. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's it's unreal. It's I mean, if you got to get shot right, like it's cool to have the footage. I think. Yeah, let's yeah. watch you on GoPro, buddy. Let's do that again. <laughs> You know Take two. Like, love watching this is my mom, right? Like the, the person in the world. That you oh, would think, like, yeah, I bet. That is savage. She's like, yeah, she's like, I know the, <laughs> the ending. It's really good. So, mom, um, mom, watch this part where they throw this tourniquet on me. <laughs> I'm screaming and yelling at people for morphine. I love you, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, they loaded me up. Um, onto the helicopter is like a 15 minute ride. We get there, they start frantically cutting off my uniform. I'm at the field hospital up there. They like coincidentally, a lot of my buddies from our sister team had to go to on the the previous deployment. And the surgeon asked me a series of questions. He's like, do you have any questions for me? And I'm like, well, sir, am I going to live or not? He's like, I I don't know, man. It looks pretty bad. Uh, Do you have any last requests? Well, uh, yeah, could you save the bullet? Can I get a rip it? <laughs> yeah. Did you rip it before this? <laughs> and an MRE, maybe beef stew. I think there's M and M's in that one. Uh, but I asked for the bullet. I actually have the bullet at home. He saved it for me. But wow. uh, well, I mean, so I- that's the one thing, Kevin, that you you made your request of is yeah, yeah. Can you give me? I, I know I'm going to die, but can I have the bullet? Yeah. Well, and then I asked for my last rites from a Catholic priest. Okay. okay. I, <laughs> for certain, uh, I was going to die. And then uh, my next recollection was uh, four days later, I asked somebody if I'd gone to heaven or hell. And they're like, no, nah, man, you're in Launchville Regional Medical Center. <laughs> you're, pretty you're close. You're still in purgatory. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. <laughs> oh, man. Welcome to Launchville. Well, you know, I can imagine yeah. with it hitting that nerve, the pain, nerve pain, anybody that's ever suffered nerve pain knows that feeling and it's not pleasant by any means. So I could certainly see how you thought something was affecting you on your leg. You know, that would have been my first thought as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I we didn't really figure out kind of the extent of these injuries until I would say a couple months after. Okay. After, after the initial gunshot. Right. Um, I mean, you could tell immediately. You know, my, my, my stomach cut open when I was in uh, Germany. They took 20% of my colon out because the bullet hit my colon. It fractured my hip. So they could, they could tell that stuff immediately, right? Like, you know, 
stomach is, uh, the colon's out. We got to worry about infection. My stomach was open for a couple of weeks to do the wound washouts. My hip was fractured. You could see that on uh, x-ray. And, you know, I kept telling them like, Hey, look, like I can't move my leg. And they're like, Oh yeah, don't worry. There's probably just a little nerve damage that'll come back, uh, pretty quickly with everything and you just get sick to your physical therapy. And so it was at Brook Army for a couple of weeks. And then I went back up to Fort Lewis and that was right when the Thor programs really uh, were taken off. Thankfully, like, you know, the, the folks at yes, the first definitely. group shout out to them on your rap, my physical therapist, um, you know, they're the reason why I can walk right now. Uh, but you know, when I went there, I was sitting, hitting that place up like six hours a day because I'm this young, hard charger. And I'm like, I'm going to will myself to get better. Nothing's going to stop me. And my stomach healed, my hip healed, but my legs started to atrophy away to the, to the size of my arm. Mm. Uh, and that was when we really understood the extent of all the injuries. Um, they're like, look, your nerve is dead. And there's nothing like and at that time, nobody really knew like what to do. They're like maybe try the Mayo Clinic. And so Anya, the physical therapist reached out there and they were like the only people in the country at the time would take my case. Oh my God, man. So was it 7.62 that got you? Is that what it ended up being or? Okay. Yeah. 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 So that's a good reminder. I look at that thing whenever I want to feel bad for yeah. myself. Do, do, do you ever go, it does make a distinct sound when fired upon you. It it does. Like it definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that's messed up, Eric. <laughs> I couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> you had you die we wouldn't be talking this because way. that's why like <laughs> but we love you <laughs> yeah oh man you ended up after that having six surgeries thousands of hours of physical therapy and over 40 inches of scars yeah the, the surgery at the mayo clinic um was pretty intense pretty invasive um I had, they cut from the bottom of my ankle to about three quarters of the way up my thigh. They took that sensory nerve out of my left leg. So I don't have any feeling in my left leg anymore. It's actually made for a lot of awkward conversations and I'm sitting next to somebody. I've been rubbing their leg for an hour. And I, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> it's good but, to know. Good to know the next time we talk, Evan, yeah, you start yeah, rubbing your leg. Case, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so th then they cut my stomach open again and they grafted that nerve in. And so basically the intention was that over the course of however long, they had no clue really like when it was going to work, how it was going to work. If it was going to work, I would be able to gain full range of motion back in my leg. And so like every day I would sit on my bed when I got back from the surgery and like hang my legs off the side of the bed and say like, today's the day your leg is going to work. And then nothing would happen, uh, but we'd have to go to physical therapy and try to get after it in hopes that at some point I'll be able to move my leg again. Physical terror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I can only imagine like the anguish of that even too. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I think going from somebody who a former college football player to a green beret to a man that can't even move his leg anymore. That like, if he needs his couch moved, he's got to call his buddies to do that. Um, needs help people getting him dressed. And like, it was incredibly, incredibly humbling experience. And this all really too coincided with my teammate, uh, Ben Wise getting killed. Uh, he was the second boy in his family to die in Afghanistan. His brother was killed in Bob Chapman about two years yep. prior. So all this came down on me, just brutal. And, uh, when I left the Mayo Clinic, I was prescribed 12 pills of morphine a day, 12 pills of Dilaudid or 12 pills of Percocet and two Valium. Oh my gosh. And, 
Yeah. I mean, at the time I needed every one of them, but like after a while, it was definitely the coping mechanism, right? For dealing with the pain that I was in, um, the, the pain of the, the deployments, the pain of losing your teammates, the, the survivor's guilt that I had. Three guys in the company got killed in the deployment. Um, and so it was like six months, I think, after the last surgery, my wife finally sat me down one day and she was like, is this it? Is this what you're going to do with the rest of your life? And I was like, what are you talking about? And I'm a combat veteran, Green Beret. I'm disabled. I'm in pain. And, you know, my wife's a tough New Englander, so she doesn't give a shit about any of that. So, you know, she's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's like, yeah, I don't care. Like, you know, you take a couple pills a day and next year it's more and more after that. And the next thing you know, you're addicted. And you know, she really reminded me of a lot of the goals I had set for myself. And it was the angriest I'd ever been in our relationship with her, but I realized she was right. And so I kind of, I drew the line in the sand and stopped taking pills the next day and started studying for grad school. I think it's just this incredible turning point in my recovery in which I was able to kick a bad habit, um, and then start to plan for the future. And then to me, that really helped my physical recovery also. So let's just talk about that because what you really did is like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's amazing. But I mean, let's just say that you had to make a serious pivot at this point. And I think that's what she was trying to do is give you a wake up call that says that, Hey, you've got to find a new passion, a new purpose in life here where you can put all of your energy and effort and uh, so what is that going to be, Kevin? What What is that going to be for you that's going to snap you out of it and uh, make you go and move on to the next phase? You know, that was a that was a pretty earth shattering thing right here. Oh, yeah. And and I think it's a lesson I still take today. Right. Like as a veteran, when you transition out, right, you, you were we were a part of something that was so purposeful, and so meaningful. If you're going to have a successful transition out, then you need to find something on par with that. Um, and it's out there for you. And so like at that time, there was a you know, a couple of things that were, were pushing me, right? A lot of people believed in me. Mm-hmm. I could not let those people down. Couldn't let my wife down. Couldn't let the people that were putting all the time in for me, just like anonymous people. That yeah. Were giving work. New teammates, them. new teammates. That's, that's what you have now. You know, you got that new nucleus, right? So like people look up to you, man, like whether you like it or not, they do. And you're, you're inspiring people here. Um, and then I set my sights. I was like, you know, I'm going to go to like a top tier graduate school, right? I have like a full GI bill. Um, it'll be a great way to go figure out the next chapter. And so stopped taking the pain meds, started studying for the grad school exams the next day, scored a 17% on my first practice exam. Wow. Realized how difficult <laughs> it was. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, babe, I'm ready. Not so much. Oh, man. You should have um, been but, a ranger. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to smash the computer like a ranger after I got (laughs) 18 Bravo. No, likey the computer. (laughs) But, uh, but that was, I was like, all right, man. Like when I went through the Q course, I used to tell myself, like you chose this path. Um, you're being tested. How are you going to react? Yep. I was like, you know, you, you chose this situation. You put yourself in harm's way. This is the result. You know, how are you going to move forward? How are you going to react to this? And so I just like put the blinders up. I would get up every day. I would study until I couldn't see, like I couldn't read anymore on a computer screen, go to physical therapy, come home, do it again. was able to apply to uh, Harvard Business School, MIT's Business School, and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government because uh, I had a short window. I made the decision in kind of a small amount of time. And 
I got rejected by both Harvards initially. I got waitlisted at MIT. Uh, so I, I bought a plane ticket from Seattle to Boston. I flew across the country, walked up to the admissions office unannounced, and I was like, hey, I just want to say thank you so much for putting me on the wait list. I flew out here from Seattle to tell you, now what do I have to do to actually get into school? <laughs> nice. I love that. That is, yes. that, that's like some straight-up ASO stuff right there, bro. That's really cool. Yeah. No, that's – everybody <laughs> yeah, so should like, do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, who dares wins. I mean, like, taking – like, dude, like the surgery – that I, the last Mayo Clinic surgery, we had no clue if it was going to work, right? We had no clue what I was going to do, but it was like, I, I, I know what the outcome will be if I don't do the surgery. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have this condition for the rest of my life. And so went out there um, three months. I went on this massive campaign to get into the school, and three months later, I got accepted uh, right around the time I got my retirement paperwork. My wife was seven months pregnant, uh, so she's moving across the country to try to figure out where to live, where to like birth this child. I'm trying to get out of the army, which is not an easy thing to do. My team is like helping me pack up my, uh, my pod and I get out there and like a week later I start school. I was going to ask, what is, what is the missus thinking about all of this? I mean, and was she like, yeah, yeah. Buy the ticket, go, go do this. Or was she kind of like, are you mad? I think at that point, like my wife just understood like I'm just kind of crazy. And when I put my mind to something, there is literally no stopping me in doing it. Like it is going like say like whatever I want, I'm going to get. It doesn't mean it's the best thing for me, but I'm 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 going to get that. (laughs) That's awesome. I could totally see you out there with your picket sign. I mean, three months worth of campaigning, Kevin. I mean, you must have like really been knocking on their door every day. And they're like, God, we gotta get this kid in. We just gotta get him off my chest here. Yeah, that's what I think. I was like, I'm just going to make it so much for them where they're like, let's just let him in. I know like the government will pay full tuition for him and like, exactly. Yeah, maybe yeah. he'll pan out or whatever. <laughs> Somebody's got to hold up the left side of the curve here. <laughs> <It'll bump out. laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, so started school and like definitely realized how fortunate I was to go there. But I mean, that first year of business school was the hardest year of my life. Um, that includes the Q course, that includes the deployments, that includes the recovery. Um, of getting shot. Um, it, it was, it was tough, man. It was so humbling. I say after getting shot my life, was just a very humbling experience for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I would have to give myself a pep talk every day before I went to school and be like, Hey man, like, do you really want to go in there today? Cause like when you raise your hand, right, this is MIT. Uh, you're going to embarrass yourself. Well, and you you've got to maintain for, for those who've never gone to grad school, you you've got to maintain at least a B average in grad school. So you're talking about, you pick one of the hardest schools yeah. and a tough yeah. and a tough degree at that school that you have to maintain that B average at. Yeah. I mean, when you go big, yeah. you, it's kind of go big or go home. You like reach up there. Don't you, Kevin? Yeah, that's what I thought. I just like, I'm all or nothing, right? To, yeah. Uh, set these massive goals for myself. And, uh, you know, it's a funny story about the B average. I mean, I was doing so bad in my first term that I'm like, God, they're going to they're kick me out of school. This is terrible. I'm doing awful. And they're like, dude, don't worry about it, man. It's business school. Everybody gets a B. That's what business school stands for. And like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm doing really bad, man. And they're like, yeah, don't worry. I've never heard of anybody getting a C. And then I got two Cs in the first semester. Oh, <laughs> Um, not but, good. Uh, I mean, in, in, you know, we had our kid a week before midterms and uh, it was just a really bang, bang transition out. I felt very much out of place. I didn't really know what to talk to my classmates about, uh, you know, given the past seven years of my life. And uh, it was just, 
it was just really, I, you know, intellectually was, was just challenged. And uh, I felt like every day I left there, my, like my capacity limits had been reached. And um, it, it was, that was a turning point though, because that fall um, I swallowed my pride. I reapplied to the, the Kennedy, the Harvard Kennedy school, I was able to get in the second time around to pursue dual masters. But uh, when I interviewed for my internships, I got rejected by 16 out of 17 companies. The only reason why I got that internship with uh, Amazon was my first internship was because the fourth recon colonel uh, interviewed me. And, you know, he sees my resume. He's like, yeah, you're good. Right. But uh, it taught me like, I really, if 16 out of 17 companies said no to me, then it's not, it's not them. It's me. Right. I got to work on how I'm sending myself. I got to work on yeah. selling off of my experiences as a green beret and relate that to them about how I can help their company out. And, you know, I got to start taking some feedback from people. I got to ask people for help. I got to, I got to let go of a lot of this bitterness and cynicism that had grown in my heart. And that was a big turning point in my recovery there. Again, you know, you've got to be able to present your value to an organization. And if you don't have that speech, that elevator pitch, that ability to communicate well on their terms, on their level and, and what they're used to hearing of how that value is going to be presented, then you're going to struggle. I mean, you've got to go out there and be ready for what you're describing there. And I was going to ask you, were you going through like an executive MBA program? So were there people that had already been in the job market for a period of time that was uh, able to kind of give you some pointers and, and help you somewhat? Or were you, were you just kind of floundering as a fish on your own trying to help through that transition and applying for companies at the same time? So it was a full-time program. Yeah. Um, Resources were definitely there, like a career development office, classmates that wanted to help me out. Um, but, you know, I was just kind of like emotionally um, shutting myself off from a lot of people and, you know, kind of dealing with a lot of the bitterness that I was, um, you know, after going through like the nightmarish VA process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I initially got out, I had a 70% rating, like disabled for the That's rest of my crazy, life, man. paralyzed left leg, 40 inches of scars, <laughs> like 20% of my colon roof. In a set, so like, just a lot of that that bitterness that I had allowed to like stay in my heart, and I needed to really work on myself. Uh, um, so the the resources were there. It was just more of a matter of me, like seeking them out and accepting them. And you know, it's funny. Like one of my best friends at business school uh, was a 24 year old, and she was like my life coach. <laughs> you know, I'm just like 30 year old creeper, right? Yeah. This girl's 20 years old and she's like my life coach teaching me how to present myself in interviews I can totally me- see it yeah <laughs> but i mean you're like a fish out of water though it's all new experiences and so probably great that you had someone like that that you grew so close to that had you know at least you know the ability and the knowledge and everything else to be able to share that with you though you know i mean even at a young age at 24 years old yeah, yeah i mean it was great to, to be able to have like resources like that and uh and, and and ultimately too, like once I, I kind of like, you know, let a lot of the, uh, the anger go, I was able to take a step back and be like, well, I actually have an opportunity to really help out a lot of my other classmates. Right, they're going to help me out in a lot of hard skills, but I got a lot of other skill sets that I could can help people out with. That. I would agree. And I would almost say like anger is a lot like, and I kind of related this today with somebody was like anger can be almost like a substance abuse uh, in our own right. And for us, uh, because we as, you know, Green Berets, we as, you know, veterans, whatever you want to say, like we 
we encompass like that that encompass us at times, especially when we're down in the dumps or whatever. And you know, it, it takes that perception change and changing that angle, and you know, that reaching that tipping point, and being like, hey, this is stupid, and letting th- things go, and just trying to control the things that we can actually control. Yeah, I think that's that's a great assessment of that, Eric. Yeah, that's we've used anger as an asset for so long. And it's much less of an asset in the civilian world. I lear- I've learned that the hard way. I think a lot of us who have transitioned have. Yeah, a big part like of uh, my recovery was doing like, and I say recovery. I don't just mean physical. I mean my mental, my emotional recovery. Did a lot of uh, meditation, a lot of yoga. The special operator. Oh yeah. Is, uh, oh man. Yeah. One of my role models. That's a good dude. Matt actually is uh, not able to join us today, so uh, he had planned to be on. That's the guy I look up to. He encouraged me to get deeper and deeper into like my mindfulness and my my yoga practice. Uh, yeah. But th- that was something I would remind myself a lot when I was doing things like that. Like the characters and attributes that made you very successful as a Green Beret served you very well, helped you save your life and other people's lives are not serving you well right now. <laughs> And you need to, to let those go. Um, and so that was a, a big project for me to work on. Now, you ended up uh, rising, of course, through the private sector and into being a director of strategic projects for a Boston-based cybersecurity firm. So, I mean, you've done quite well for yourself. You obviously set the, the bar high once again and the sights out there and you knew what you had to do in order to uh, to work through the private sector and probably used a lot of the skill sets and everything that you had again in, in uh, the military to be able to help you navigate that course. Yeah. Yeah. My, my uh, transition continuously got better throughout grad school. Um, I did my first internship with Amazon, my second one with Goldman Sachs. And, you know, this, I, I kind of had this chip on my shoulder uh, when I was at grad school. Like I wanted to show people I could transition out and, uh, you know, wanted to, do something completely opposite of the military. So whenever people, you know, I, I, I was learning, right. I was learning to take advice. I was learning, but it still wasn't there. Um, and so when people would say like, Hey, you should look at this. You probably be really good at it based off your experiences in the military. I'm like, yeah, all right. Not looking at that. Not doing that. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm laughing, but yeah, we do that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm like, I'm going I'm to prove to everybody. It's like, you know, I'm not just a knuckle dragger. Um, and I uh, was like, well, I'm not going to finance because I'm like, well, that's like completely different than anything I did in the military. Uh, so I did this internship with Goldman Sachs. It was a great experience. Goldman actually does a ton of work with veterans. Um, you know, they're very big on, on veteran uh, internship programs and, and getting veterans in and supporting veterans networks. Uh, so I took that offer and I, you know, ultimately, I knew it wasn't going to be the best thing for me, um, but I was like, you know, it's, it's Goldman, and I've made it, right? Like, this is what people go to business school for, um, and then went and did it, and, you know, I learned a ton while I was there. I mean, it's a, if you want to be in finance, it's a great place to be in finance, but what I found was, like, I was just really missing all those things that people told me I was good at. I was, I was missing those things. I was missing a lot of the aspects that I did in the in the military and you know finance is a very uh, individual contributor role yeah. it's very tough you know you come from a tight-knit team to be in that position so i really started to understand it like it just it was a great experience learned a lot about um finance the business world but knew i needed to, to figure out something going forward and it was a, a soul-searching point for me where to be like 
had to really figure out like, what, what do I really want to do? Like, what's the next move for me? What did I love about being a green beret? You know, what did I like about my time in finance? What don't I like about all this? And was able to distill it down to five things. I was like, for the rest of my life, I need to be motivating people, leading them, mentoring, uh, solving problems, and of course, learning. I want to learn till the day I die. Yeah. So whatever job allows me to do those five things, love it. I'm going to be a very happy man. All those things that, that you can control too. Yeah, right. Like, and, and that's how I thought about how I was going to make my exit out of Goldman. And so just kind of really started talking to anybody in the Boston area that would have a conversation with me. Uh, basically just told them the stories that I told you guys about what had happened to me and what I've had to overcome in life and what I want out of life. And was very fortunate to get in front of the CEO of our company, since Brian Hearn, uh, threat stack, and it, you know had that conversation with him. And at the end of an hour, he's like, look, man, I don't know what I want you to do here, but I, I just want you on the team. So yeah. I've been yeah. Good. create a position here for you. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's listeners out there, right? If, if you're in a business position, if you're in any, any type of position to hire veterans, right, I think you need to, to be forward thinking like Brian and you need to get out there and need to say like, this person might not have the raw t- or, the, or the skills necessarily to be in this industry, but they have raw talent. They have experiences in life. They have this incredible ability to overcome, to think outside of the box. And these are just people that you want on your team and you got to give them a chance and spend the time with them to get them up to speed. They'll get up to speed quicker than anybody else. And they're going to be an incredible performer. Let me flip that to the other side. For those individuals that are making the transition, also look for positions that can be stepping stones where you can learn the industry. You can learn inside the jobs and the company and everything else that you can do just like what this guy decided or looked at you for, which is create a position where you can use your strengths inside that company um, and create the role, the job, the title, the whole bit. I mean, and I can tell you for my career in the private sector, nearly every one of my positions, and I've said this in really early podcasts, were created by me. They were into, you know, there was those types of situations where, um, you know, I looked at what I could do best at that time frame and or work together with leadership to try to create those types of opportunities. And I used to tell, by the way, the people that I led that you should be doing the same thing. Quit looking in the job boards. Quit looking out there inside your company for the next opportunity where you could get a promotion. Go to your boss and say, hey, listen, this is what I'm seeing and this is what I can do to or- in order to help that out. You know, and that's that's great that you had somebody that actually took the time to evaluate you to do that for you. Yeah, so I've been here for about 10 months. It's been an incredible experience, um, you know, because yeah, I, I made it really clear to him, too, like at the beginning, I'm like, hey, look, like I have no cybersecurity experience. Um, I have no startup experience and I have no tech experience. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it was definitely a, a pretty steep learning curve, but it's been yeah. awesome. <laughs> you're hired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, you're exactly what we're looking for, right? I mean, how many how many people out here really, though, when you think it and break it down, are going to be looking for somebody who's separated not only just from the military that might be in a combat arms situation or combat arms uh, specific MOS, but somebody like, you know, in the soft community or special forces community, um, they're not always going to translate to the private sector necessarily in a straight up environment and industry specific. So you've got to be able to. Again, you know, market yourself and figure out a way that you can take those, uh, not just the soft skills, but even some of the hard skills that you learned in a way to present it. And kudos for you to do uh, for doing that. Well, you know, it was a lot of humiliation and pain and suffering along the way. <laughs> <laughs> <I bet. laughs> Nothing comes easy, that's for sure. 
I was going to say, quite honestly, I could probably use your help, man. So, yeah, that that's awesome. And, so, I, you know, I love to do that now. I say my life is about making mistakes so other people don't have to. And, uh, you know, now that I'm in the position I'm that the I'm in. I'm the poster boy for that. Yeah. <laughs> now that I'm in the position that I'm in, I, the, the real purpose of my life, um, you know, in addition to being like the best father and husband you know, that I can be is just to take all of these lessons that I've learned as in transition you know, through special forces training, through deployments, through getting hurt throughout the recovery process and give them to other people. It's like an experience is worth nothing unless you share it. You know, that's a, exactly. it's a great lesson. And, you know, when I was going through MBA school and you may have had heard the same thing, I don't know, it'll be interesting to hear. But uh, one of the things that the, the dean told us that you want to try to aspire to in the business community is not necessarily becoming a C-suite, you know, COO, CFO, CEO type of role. It's getting and rising to the level where organizations will consider you to be a board member on their on their boards, you know, for their companies. And uh, so congratulations as well goes to you for being on the uh, Green Beret Foundation as a board member. Yeah, thank you very much. It's, uh, I say, one of the greatest honors of my life to be on the board there. That foundation was there for my wife and I from day one. Uh, no questions asked, no strings attached, anything that we needed, they were there for us. Uh, there was a phone call or an email away. When I separated from the service, when I was at grad school, we needed help with certain things. Uh, they were there for us. And so now, you know, I just want to make sure that uh, when guys come back in the condition that I came back in, and they'll, they'll keep doing that, uh, that they know, right, the foundation's got their back the way mm-hmm. that they had for me. And I just really look Absolutely. forward to uh, serving the regiment, uh, the men, the spouses, the, the kids. Yeah. No, that's that's great, and uh, yeah, that's a it's a tremendous honor, I'm sure, and especially at again your young age and uh, experience within the private sector and everything else, you're going to be a tremendous asset bringing uh, the transition component to it, the struggles that you had within the private sector of that transition, and rising, you know, into the role that you've gone in through through many years of doing the internship and many different companies. That's all going to be so valuable to um the regiment to the foundation it's going to be uh, some some good stuff yeah thank you uh well how can people learn more about you kevin as we begin to move forward i mean there may be some people out there that want to learn more about you know what you're doing how they may be able to utilize some of your um, skills or benefits and stuff of the green beret foundation and those types of things what's the best way that people can get in contact with you yeah so you can check out my website i started it back in 2013 uh, was working with a lot of guys one-on-one uh, really enjoyed helping them you know it's difficult as my recovery was going it was still going really well so loved having the opportunity to help these guys out and thought that i would kind of bring my message to a broader audience so started the website started blogging getting on social media uh, so it's woundedbywar.com um, you can have a Wounded by War Facebook page. I'm at Wounded by War on Instagram. Uh, I love reading Eric's posts. You know, you're one of my uh, one of my favorites on on the gram. I call it. Uh, cool he kids just made me blush. <laughs> yeah. um, All we have to do is uh, top of his head. There, I can see it. Yeah, Eric and I, I have know, the same right? haircut. <laughs> same barber. Hey, it's aerodynamic. <laughs> yeah, um, but but also actually, um, one of the big things we did for the Green Beret Foundation is. Uh, uh, for over a year, I've been working on a documentary uh, with, you know, using that helmet camera footage, using footage of me walking for the first time, going through physical therapy. Um, you know, I do a lot of motivational speaking. So at a lot of speaking events, 
we put together a 35-minute documentary that kind of tells the whole story in a more visual sense. Uh, so we had an event here in Boston. We premiered it. Uh, we raised almost $35,000 for the foundation. The event went incredibly well. That's, con- that's so congratulations. Now, um, that's awesome. Awesome. Hey, yeah. Thank everybody that came there. It was an awesome event. Um, and the uh, we now have uh, it streaming online. So you can, for a $10 donation to the Green Beret Foundation, you can download the documentary and you have it for the rest of your life. So, you, you know, you can get in contact with me through all those social media outlets, through my website. Um, I'll have the, the documentary on the website. It's also on the Green Beret Foundation page, too. Awesome. Uh, Kevin, again, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I think it's inspiring and I hope that people who are listening can take something away from it, whether it's from, you know, the struggle and the journey that you had, the rising and coming back, you know, wounded by war, but never broken is kind of your tagline. And I think it fits it very well, you know, and the ability to, to pivot to make decisions to change your future, to make something better of it. And uh, certainly other people are seeing that in you already in the positions that you've had and putting you on the Green Beret Foundation board. So wish you nothing but the best in your future and appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Hey, thank you guys for having me on here. It's an absolute honor.